Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest, it's a great pleasure, is Nimrod Ben-Ziv. Nimrod uh, obtained his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania in 2020 and currently is a, um, a Polonsky Academy Fellow at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute, and at the same time, he holds a postdoc position at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He is the author of a number of articles dedicated to labor history and particularly on cement, which we will discuss later on. But more importantly, he's in the uh, process of publishing his uh, much-awaited book, Foundations of Inequality. But first of all, Nimrod, welcome. Thank you very much, Roberto. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. The first question I want to ask you is very much connected to your area of research. When we think about Jerusalem and Palestine, obviously there's a lot of work done on obviously the conflict, on ethnic communities, uh, religious institutions, and obviously the politics, the diplomacy. And in the last decade or so, we also saw a number of works dedicated to a specific area, gender history, for instance, or you know, anthropological studies. But you're working on material. And I remember reading your article on Jerusalem Quarterly about cement and I, I was just blown away. I, I just didn't figure out exactly how could you write history following cement. Then it made sense, obviously, uh, because cement is the building foundational material in order to build a house, a, a factory, mm -hmm. anything really. And so I was wondering, how did you get to work on building materials and particularly on cement? So the, the, this is... Um... I'm sure you can imagine it's it's a question that comes up in conversation. How did you find yourself? Um, what on earth 
made you choose this subject. Um, I, I think um, what happened to, to me is what, what happens to a lot of people who are working on their, um, on their dissertations, um, starting their PhD studies. I came in with, with one idea of what I was going to do, um, which was, you know, a, a sort of uh, a sensory history of different environments, um, um, orange groves and construction sites and stuff like that. Um, and it was supposed to be a very sort of colorful and, and, and sensuous um, history, um, also sort of influenced by the sensory turn. Um, and I started writing um, a paper about cement um, as part of sort of my studies and, and the history of construction through the lens of cement. And I realized that this was a whole vast um, sort of field um, in terms of, of the importance of materials like cement and stone and, and, and reinforced concrete, as well as the sort of role of, um, of construction work um, in, this, in the history of, of, of Israel-Palestine um, that has been, you know, it's, it's, it's never really true to say uh, untouched, um, but has had very little written um, about it from a historical perspective. And it sort of seems, you know, so, so someone needs to write this, I, I, it might as well be me. Um, so that's sort of the story of how I find, found myself in, in the cement. Um, Thinking about the material itself, can you give us a sense of uh, how cement uh, developed in Palestine? Your, your work basically spans from say, the end of the Ottoman era up to the uh, uh, 1940s. So I, I was wondering, you know, to what extent cement was available, whether it was traded, uh, you know, between different countries around Palestine or actually was a local produce? That, that's a really good question. And, and it's it, it sort of the, the answer is, um, I would say, multi-layered um, in, the, in, in the sense that from different perspectives, the entry of cement um, can be dated a little differently. Um, the entry of cement into Palestine. The first, um, the first shipments, I think, of, of what we think of as modern cement um, and there were other, you know, cement-like materials, other mortars that were used traditionally in Palestine. Um, but the sort of Portland cement that we think of as modern cement um, enters Palestine in the final decades of the 19th century. And it enters first as an import um, through the port in Jaffa, primarily. Um, to, some, to some extent, I think also from the, from the port in Gaza, although Jaffa, I think, is the primary, primary entry. And it enters from various sources. Belgium um, is one um, exporter. Um, British cement makes its way. And the people who are using it um, are the Templars, who are incorporating cement quite early on in their construction projects. Um, and, and later on, um, it becomes incorporated into um, sort of early Zionist architecture around Tel Aviv, 
um, but also in the work of Palestinian contractors, first as a different kind of mortar, so not in sort of concrete construction, but using cement as a mortar itself. And the real um, forceful entry, their attempts, and, and the architect um, Ola Aleksandrovich um, wrote about this. Um, there are attempts around the start of Tel Aviv to really introduce cement forcefully um, as a way of differentiating between what is Jewish construction and what is Palestinian construction, uh, what is Palestinian Arab construction. Um, and, and those efforts start in the 1910s, 1909, 1910s, and they sort of fail um, in, in, in a fairly significant way. And the real entry is, is the 1920s. 1920s is when you really start seeing um, much more cement being imported. It's also when you have the first cement factory established, um, the, the Nesher factory, which is, is still um, the largest cement producer has been for the past 100, almost 100 years, on and off a monopoly um, of cement production within within the land, the region, um, and and it's and that's when it really starts to pick up. I think is 1920s, certainly 1930s, 1940s. It's it's gradually becoming more significant than stone in Palestinian uh, construction practices, as well as um, sort of Jewish Zionist construction practices. You mentioned a number of very fascinating elements and made me think about uh, how, for instance, uh, particularly in the late Ottoman and obviously with the British mandate, Jerusalem was built in stones, even though mm -hmm. this was only the outer layer of the houses because uh, it was too expensive to use uh, the stone and the British eventually allowed uh, corrugated iron to be put uh, behind a thin layer of stones. But quite interestingly, I never really found records about cement. So I, I, I guess they, for practical reasons, they relied on cement. Um, so I was wondering, you know, to what extent actually the, the cement itself was relevant for building Palestine for both the Zionists and the Arabs, particularly in the, uh, you know, during the mandate era. So, so I, I think Jerusalem, and, and obviously you know this, you've written about the stone and, and sort of stores and, and the, the, the Jerusalem society. Um, Jerusalem is in many ways the exception um, to the rule, I think, in terms of, of um, the, the legislation um, essentially restricting construction to at least stone facades. Um, and, and whereas other places in Palestine um, move more quickly towards concrete construction. Um, I, I would say that the place of cement, um, there are several ways to track this. So one way is to look at the, the sort of writing about cement and the Zionist thinking, for example, in even early Zionist thinkers. So when, when Theodor Herzl um, writes um, Alt Neuland, um, the sort of uh, old new land, the, the sort of programmatic-ish novel for what the um, Jewish homeland will look like, um, there is one moment in the novel itself where 
among the sort of achievements of the Jewish um, society, um, the new Jewish society, new Jewish national society there, um, uh, the establishment of a cement factory is cited as a major achievement. Um, it's, it's interesting that there's sort of several layers of technology here because the way the reader is exposed to this narrative is through a, a record, a phonograph record that they're listening to in the novel um, detailing the technical achievements. So it's sort of a, a double sort of layer of technicality and sort of technology um, in the novel itself. Um, and Arthur Rupin talks about um, cement factories as an interest of the Zionist um, endeavor as sort of a way of, of constructing more efficiently. Um, so does, um, uh, I'm blanking now, the, the name will come back to me. Um, not Katinka. Um, Nahum Vilboshevsky um, also talks about a plan for a cement factory um, in the early sort of 1900s, 1910s. And at the same time, um, you also see sort of financial interests, American and otherwise, thinking about, you know, Palestine is ready for uh, either massive cement imports or even a cement factory. Um, so, so in the Zionist um, sort of story, there's also a, an almost mythical level to the to the attention to the material. Um, you have those classic songs, classic poems and, and songs by uh, Nathan Alderman, um, who talks about dressing the land in a gown um, of a, a gown of concrete and cement um, as sort of part of the achievements, part of what the Zionist mission in Palestine is. Um, and, and there's a lot of investment, also a lot of capital going in that direction. So people um, like Mikhail Polak, who ends up establishing Nesher um, as a sort of massive um, economic undertaking. Um, and, and that story, I think, as part of uh, the story of building the land, you know, the sort of Zionist quest of to build and to be built is, is fairly well known. Um, sort of mythic dimensions of the materials, even if we don't really think about them, they're part of the sort of myth of Hebrew labor, building the land, etc. But there's also, I think what's most interesting to me is that there's a Palestinian counterpart to this in the, man, in the mandate period. Um, and and I, I mentioned this in, in the article that, that you mentioned earlier, the Jerusalem Quarterly um, article, where Palestinians, especially Palestinians writing in the press, but also sort of um, what, what Shirin Saikali, uh, the people who Shirin Saikali refers to as Palestine's men of capital, um, are thinking about cement and concrete in very similar terms as sort of materials that are essential to the project of even if not quite in the terms of building a, a nation state at this stage, say in the late 20s, mid 30s, certainly um, materials necessary for a form of economic independence, um, a form of um, releasing themselves from the reliance on, on the colonial author British authorities and of, of modernizing Palestinian society in, in sort of material terms. So, so it certainly has a place. 
this made me wonder about the political value of cement in a sense. I mean, when, I, when we think about today how uh, as part of the conflict of the ongoing conflict, also there's the management of cement, whether cement can be sent to Gaza or not, for instance, mm -hmm. to what extent Palestinians in East Jerusalem can access cement or not. And also the same is in the West Bank. So there's a sort of a limited amount of material sent. This really shows how this obviously has a, has a long history behind and it comes from an ideology connected to the material itself. Um, perhaps I'll ask you about what you think about it later. But right now sure. I was thinking about, uh, you know, this, this idea that cement is also connected with the arrival of the Zionists, particularly on, on the Zion side, and also the establishment of, of a town, which is still there mm -hmm. up uh, uh, north, uh, close to Haifa, and, you know, the city is Nesher. There are various uh, plants throughout uh, the region, some of them that can be seen driving, but certainly Nesher is like, essentially was built upon the idea of, of becoming an, if, if I may say, like a sort of a cement town where mm -hmm. that was the main um, production. And I was wondering, you know, how did this uh, play out? This was like a plan, as you said, this was just the result of, uh, you know, unplanned uh, sort of, uh, you know, business operations. And also to what extent uh, Jews and Arabs particularly during the mandate, cooperated in the production of cement. Okay, no, that's, um, those are really, really good questions. And we can absolutely get back to um, the, the question of sort of the long durée of cement and concrete um, in, in Palestine, Israel. I, I, I'd love to talk about that. Um, so Neshel, I, I, my sense is, um, that Nesha, the town Nesha, um, which starts as sort of uh, the residential quarters of the for the factory workers, um, is I haven't seen the term um, company town used specifically, but everything about Nesha's sort of um, the, the Nesha the city. Um, the way it, it springs up, the way it, it, it it's established, um, it's very close ties to the factory, seem like a the story of a company town. Um, for, for certainly for the factory's um, proprietors, for the, for the management, for the, the capital sort of interests behind it, the thinking was we need to have workers on site um, we need to have them living close by. We will give them um, these sort of um, living quarters, um, basic um, sort of infrastructure and, and institutions. And it, it, does, it does essentially become a company town. Um, I, think, I think in a planned way, and I also think, and, and there may be other people who can correct me about this, um, that it's fairly unique in this context, um, when you look at patterns of Zionist settlement, um, I don't think you see this sort of company town um, structure um, as such. And part of it has to do, I think, with the fact that Nesha is a, a full, a, you know, full-blown capitalist venture um, from the get-go. Um, Michael Polak, who establishes it, um, is, is maybe sympathetic to Zionism, 
um, you know, you could even say is, is, is certainly sympathetic to Zionism, but he also walks a very um, tight line throughout his time in the management of the company between sort of being sympathetic to the Zionist movement, but trying to keep Nesha um, not directly affiliated with Zionism itself. He sees the project as one that, and, and with good reason, he sees the project and the, the enterprise as one that has um, markets throughout the Middle East, um, who, who aims at um, competing with cement factories in Damascus and in, 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 in Lebanon and even further afield. And for that to happen, he has to distance himself from Zionism to a certain extent. Now, this changes during World War II um, when he um, essentially sells off his shares and the Histadrut, um, the, the, the trade, the sort of general federation of trade unions um, firmly within the labor Zionist camp um, buys half of, the, half of the ownership of the company, another group of against very strictly Zionist um, sort of business elites also buy into the company and now it's very clearly Zionist. Um, in 1944, I think is the year this happens. Um, but beforehand, one of the ways that he tries to walk this line um, between sort of being affiliated with the Zionist movement and being a Middle Eastern, and I think in, in Pollock's own mind, a British, almost imperial company, um, thinking about, you know, Haifa as an imperial city, as, as Jacob Norris has taught us um, to think. And, and, and Pollock is very much of this mindset. One of the things that he does and is able to maintain for quite some time is that he insists on Palestinian Arabs and Jews working for Nesha. Um, he's able to maintain a and this, this should come with scare, scare quotes, uh, mixed um, factory um, up until the, the Great Arab Revolt, the, the, the rebellion of, of 1936. Um, that's not to say that work was divided equally though. Um, and this goes to the, to the other question. Up until 1938, I wanna say, which is when the work becomes fully Jewish, um, Arabs um, work in the quarry, in Nesher's quarry, um, for the most part, and Nesher starts operations in 1925, so for 11 years, from 1925 to 1936, they work under a um, Palestinian contractor um, and are not employees of the factory, but employed by this contractor. Um, they're doing very difficult and quite different work to the Jews who are working only in the factory, primarily in skilled jobs. And, and, and so that's one way to keep it supposedly a neutral company. But even there, you see how it's very much hierarchical. I was uh, looking at uh, some of your works uh, in the past few days, and uh, I was also fascinated by the fact that you, you looked also at the question of um, race and colonialism that you already mentioned, um, you know, alongside just the question of material. And so I was wondering, what exactly is the connection here? I mean, 
you know, how race and materials can come together? That's a, that's a tough one in the sense that, you know, it's one of the, it's one of the questions that, um, that animates my work, I think. Um, I, I, I think that if we are to, um, if we understand race as a category, um, as, a, as a, you know, obviously we are um, well beyond the point of, of understanding that race is both culturally and socially constructed, um, has no sort of, um, has no um, physical um, um, holding or bearing as a category of actually addressing human beings, but works as a social category primarily. Um, even if we are to accept that race has a lot to say um, and is primarily oriented to material bodies, right? That's the sort of the object um, of sort of racial thinking um, of these sort of hierarchies of, of race are almost always um, very closely attached to the physicality of, of the racialized um, subject. And, and I think that um, I found that looking at materials and particularly looking at how people engage with or people talk about how other groups engage with materials, with physical labor, etc., is where a lot of racial thinking um, comes to the surface. Um, because you're talking about physical bodies, about physical propensities, um, and so, so, so to give an example, it's you know hard to deny how important race was as a category for the British Empire um, in in the in particularly in the period well long before, but also particularly in the interwar period between World War One and World War Two, um, when you conceive of not only the British but many people around the world um, conceive of the world as the world itself, geopolitics as divided along racial lines, um, white peoples, non-white peoples, um, the category of sort of white dominions that emerges within the British empire. Um, and for the British, as well as for other um, in sort of colonizing um, empires, um, race is also a very important category for the division of labor. Um, who is able to do what work, um, who is, unable to do certain kinds of labor. And the British introduced this notion, um, well, to say introduce is, is, um, is maybe not entirely accurate. The British bring in their own um, interpretation of this notion of a racial division of labor, also to these, question of, to these questions of materials. Um, so Jews for the British are a highly technical um, people. Um, and are able to, are better suited. And these are almost, this is almost verbatim sort of the things that the British write about when they talk about, for example, building the Haifa Harbor, um, are better suited for more technical jobs like working with reinforced concrete and concrete blocks. Um, whereas again, in the British mindset, um, Arabs are um, stronger physically, 
um, are um, more tolerant of sort of different kinds of, of strain and pain and hard work, and are therefore better suited for hard labor, longer hours. And, and again, to us, you know, this sounds um, blatantly racist and completely ridiculous um, as, as sort of a, a notion of different bodily propensities. But for the British, this was very material and very real as a tool for dividing labor. Um, and I think that what happens is that both Zionists um, and Palestinians um, have their own sort of racial baggage in terms of racial thinking that they move into the 20th century with. Um, there's been more and more writing about it um, in the Middle Eastern context in, in the past two decades or so, certainly in the past few years, sort of tracing how ideas about race um, find their way into Middle Eastern intellectual history um, and showing that their origins are not solely imported, but also based on sort of Islamic Muslim encounters, Arab encounters with Africa, with the Caucasus, etc. Um, and there's also a, a slightly older strain of, of sort of studying Zionist thought and Jewish thought in Central Europe, but also Eastern Europe and their engagements with race. Um, and these all meet um, in the sort of British mandate period Palestine. Um, Osama Makdisi has taught us about the Ottoman Orientalisms and the, the place of race in the Ottoman discourse, uh, which also has a, way, a role here. Um, but certainly when we think about the mandate, it's a very charged moment in terms of, of racial politics. And, and I think that the materials and labor in general really bring that to the surface. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. And this is a good reminder that studying critical race theory is important, regardless of the political views, but it is essential in order to understand the 
the role of racism, but more importantly, of the question of race itself, which obviously in the conflict in Israel and Palestine is central to, even though often is neglected, uh, but it, it's part of, uh, of the conflict and the narratives too. Which brings me to ask you about uh, your other work, essentially when you talked about uh, Palestinian workers, but now these are, this is like post-1948, so these are mm -hmm. Palestinian citizens of, of Israel, and uh, obviously they, you know, they found themselves in, new, in these new situations. They had to uh, essentially adapt and uh, come to a, some form of a deal uh, with, with the state and with their also the new belonging. And here you are writing about how essentially your argument is how they become crucial in building modern Israel. Uh, so you have this kind of interesting identity of being essentially conquered, but at the same time, they become crucial in the construction industry. In the article, you talk about the period 1940-1973, and I was wondering why that period. And also, uh, you know, when you look at uh, uh, West Jerusalem, uh, which obviously between 48 and 67 was divided, I was also wondering to what extent Palestinian citizens of Israel contributed to the, what I call the cementification of, of Jerusalem, given the massive amount of buildings that have been built uh, after 48, particularly in, the, in, in West Jerusalem. So, so I'll start from the, from the last part of the question. Um, I don't know the answer to um, the role of Palestinian labor, Palestinian workers um, during this period, during 48 to 67, say, um, in the in the cementification of Jerusalem, I like that. Um, I, I think that it would be f relatively safe to assume um, that it may have been less substantial um, than in the construction of, say, um, Tel Aviv, certainly Haifa, um, during this period. In part because when you look at you know the, the the sort of geography and demography of of Palestine of Palestinian citizens within Israel after after the Nakba after forty eight, um, Jerusalem is actually quite cut off from the sort of major concentrations of Palestinian population um, in the in the decades immediately after forty eight. It's, it's sort of further out. Um, because um, the eradication of Palestinian um, settlements on the road to Jerusalem was almost complete um, during the war, um, and because the other surrounding areas are, are, you know, are in the West Bank under Jordanian rule now. Uh, so it would be slightly more remote. Um, there's also, I think, a story um, in Jerusalem of a, of a substantial... Um, Mizrahi population, um, it, working class Mizrahi population um, after 48, also prior to 48, but certainly um, in the early 50s and 60s, who I, if I understand the demography of, of, of the construction industry correctly, become the bulk of the workforce in construction in Jerusalem itself during this period. Um, so for example, I I spoke with um, uh, Ruven Abergil, um, one of the uh, founders of the Black Panthers, 
um, here in, in, in Jerusalem of the, of the social sort of uh, resistance movement of the Black Panthers and later the Black Panther Party. And one, one of the things that Abdelgeel tells uh, in sort of recounting his experiences um, is becoming a construction worker at a very young age, working on construction sites. And the sort of surroundings, the, the social surroundings on the construction site that he describes are by and large Mizrahi. Um, so you have some Ashkenazi foremen um, uh, and, and maybe some Ashkenazi workers, but not as many Palestinian workers in, in Jerusalem itself. Um, so, sorry to interrupt, but I, I was wondering sure. if this is still part of the sort of racial uh, profiling of Mizrahi Jews. Mm-hmm. So essentially, because now Palestinians uh, in Israel may be trusted or not, uh, but they, they were the builders essentially before, mm-hmm. so now they replaced with Mizrahi. There are fellow Arabs in that sense, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I would say that um, I would say that um, part of the story, as I see it, and the story that I'm telling is, is precisely a story of, of the racialization of certain fields, certain forms of labor, certain industries. For me, the, the, the main story that I focus on is, is that of construction and that racialization um, begins during the mandate period, um, even as you know, you have this sort of Zionist, labor Zionist vision of um, creating the new Jew through physical labor and, th- and the vision or the ideal of the Hebrew construction worker. By the early 40s, you see how in Jerusalem in particular, um, construction work is, is often largely Mizrahi, also already before 1948. So on the sort of more rooted um, Mizrahi communities um, within Jerusalem that exist before 48, as well as new groups of immigrants. And elsewhere, Palestinians are taking on more and more of the, even the skilled work, again, before 48. After 48, what you have is a process of very rapid racialization of the industry, certainly of unskilled labor, um, but also increasingly of other portions of the industry. And what this racialization means is that first it becomes largely Mizrahi. Um, So um, by the late 1950s, um, I think about 40% of the workforce uh, in construction are Mizrahi Jews, um, which is a lot proportionately. Um, and by the early 1960s, so se- several years later, um, you see that Palestinians are, are slow, slowly sort of becoming more and more prominent, um, not, not prominent, but predominant because they are largely sort of siloed into unskilled labor or, or sort of lower skilled um, professions. But yes, I see this racialization as happening both with Mizrahi Jews and with Palestinians. And later on, um, if we continue further further forward in the mid-1990s, early 2000s, it becomes an industry that largely um, incorporates what we call um, foreign workers, 
what other countries would probably call guest workers. So Southeast and, and South Asians, um, Eastern Europeans, um, Turkish workers, etc. So, so the industry itself is very closely linked or becomes very closely linked to these forms of racialized and marginalized labor. Reflecting again about um, you know, the title of your article, which essentially connects also ideally with the title of what will be your book, Foundation of Inequality. You talk about this idea of we built this country. So I was wondering which country did these Palestinians build? I mean, uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting uh, point. Uh, you talked about the fact that they've been active in the business, but do we know what these workers were thinking about? I mean, what were their reactions? The fact they were employed in building a state that essentially took over uh, their belonging, you know, their feelings, mm -hmm. but also their property. So I, I was wondering if there's any chance to get a feeling of uh, what was the relationship between these workers and not just the company that, you know, employed them, but also the state and the ideology of building. So, so that's a that's a complex question. I think a, a different um, and, and again, if we focus on on sort of the, the construction workers who come from within um, the strata of Palestinians able to remain after the Nakba, so so Palestinian citizens within Israel, um, I think that one thing is that for many this was. And, and, and I think it's, it's no it's, it's no secret that for many, this was a, a, a means of survival. Um, construction work um, paid well. Um, it still does um, relatively, even if um, it's, it's, you know, often very unstable employment um, in terms of, of you, you're not, you have no guarantee of when exactly you will have work, when not, um, et cetera. It, 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 it still pays well. Um, it was hungry for workers. Um, and you have this group of, of largely rural Palestinian um, men by this stage because, because it had, the construction industry is, is very, becomes very, very masculine um, through, throughout this period. Um, they find in it a way to provide for families who have been cut off from, um, first of all, cut off from the whole region, right? They've been cut off from after 48, um, Bilad Sham, um, so greater Syria. Um, they are also cut off because of the military administration, um, even from neighboring towns uh, frequently. Um, because there's no freedom of movement, um, or, or, or at least not full freedom of movement. Um, they're often cut off from their own lands um, because of the expropriations um, that take place in the early years of the state and, and afterwards. Um, and they have to very quickly adapt to this new reality. Um, and going to look for work um, often at first independently, um, often in secret, um, because you don't have a work permit or a move or a sort of freedom of movement permit from the um, from the military administration, is something that 
people find themselves doing uh, out of necessity. Um, there are people among the inter among my interviewees. There there are Palestinians who I've spoken to um, who really try um, to mobilize their role um, in 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 the, the sort of very material process of constructing of constructing the state. Um, the, the quote of we built this country is, is from um, one um, Palestinian um, labor organizer, essentially, Muhammad Abu Ahmad from Nazareth, who became a, a fairly high ranking functionary in the same Histadrut that we talked about a little earlier, the same General Federation of Trade Unions, um, when it does open its door to Palestinian membership, to Arab membership. Um, and so for someone like um, Muhammad Abu Ahmad, I think um, this ability to claim a stake in the country has a lot to do with um, sort of the, the way he aligned himself um, within the larger political framework. Um, certainly um, he sees himself as Arab. Um, I, I, I believe um, that he would also call himself Palestinian. Um, certainly his children, I think, are, 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 are even are more fully devoted to their Palestinian identity um, than he may have found himself comfortably being in terms of carving out a space for himself. Um, but, but it's a way of, of laying a claim and saying, you know, we played an instrumental role in creating this thing that you call the state of Israel. And we deserve, um, you know, everything that comes with that in terms of our rights as citizens, um, in terms of, of, of our economic rights, our, our place in this society. Um, and and I, I should contextualize this. This came up in, in the conversation with, with, uh, with Muhammad Abu Ahmad um, because he mentioned the condescension that he encountered um, from Israeli Jews who would sort of, you know, carry this mantle of, of you know, we served in the military and we did this and that. And, and, you know, the ways in which Palestinian citizens' rights are infringed upon through these various arguments, uh, they don't do military service. They don't do national service, et cetera, et cetera. So, so for someone like Muhammad Abu Ahmad, he says, well, yeah, okay, you, we built this place. So this place would not have existed without our labor. Um, and don't start, you know, these sort of games of accounting for who did what, because we have as, as much of a stake, certainly as much of a contribution as you do. Other people, I would say, approach this very differently. Other interviewees um, who didn't align themselves um, with sort of labor Zionism and, in, in such a manner um, either sort of viewed this as non-political or apolitical um, and also positioned themselves as such. Um, they're working because it's work um, and they're 
not thinking about the sort of political consequences, uh, although obviously in their experiences, they encounter them all the time. Um, the fear from them, the way they feel their lives are being regarded as less valuable, etc. And, and another group of interviewees um, sort of sees their role um, in construction as part of a more revolutionary um, attitude. Um, so they may say, yes, the reality is that we built this country in a similar manner, but also the vision we have as part of building this is, is very different. Um, we view this as, as, these, as, as you know, the foundation for a equal society. Um, and the way that we've used our position um, in construction, our knowledge in the construction industry has been to promote this vision of an equal society. So those are sort of the several of the visions that we see. I want to, I want to fast forward to the long mm -hmm. durée, which we mentioned earlier. When, when we think about cement today, particularly in the last two decades or so, let's say since Oslo, cement is about uh, settlers building settlements, is about uh, Palestinians in East Jerusalem trying to build up uh, essentially apartment on top of apartment in order to keep the uh, resident permit, the famous uh, blue ID card, but also is the prevention of cement to going to Gaza uh, in order to avoid essentially Hamas to uh, rebuild what has been destroyed. And so I was wondering, you mentioned earlier, well, let's talk about the long durée. And now I was like, yes, I think we should talk about the long durée because there are very contradicting views about the material, but also it really shows the complexity and the various layers when we just look at one single uh, you know, material, which is foundational, as you would say, the, the, the title of your work. Um, yeah, the, 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 the puns are, are endless um, in terms of, you know, something that is concrete, something that is funded, foundational, um, cementing. Um, so it's, it's very hard to avoid. Um, but I, I think that it is actually really helpful um, to think about this in, in sort of a longer history of the various materials um, that I deal with, so cement and, and concrete and stone, um, and, and also the sort of longer, um, longer history of, of who does the actual work of construction. Um, and, and I think that one of the things that the various um, points that you raise about the contemporary moment, um, the need to use, um, to sort of build um, almost um, ad hoc and sort of um, in, in a very rudimentary fashion, often in, in Palestinian East Jerusalem, um, has antecedents in, in sort of the construction methods of Palestinian towns and villages um, within, within Israel. So the same citizens who I was talking about earlier when they build their homes in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, um, they often are facing 
similar, not not identical, because their citizenship maybe is is first of all they're citizens, not just residents, um, and it's more secure than that of of East Jerusalem, uh, East Jerusalemites. But nonetheless, they're not given the opportunity to build, and you have this architecture um, that arises from that, which is this bare concrete. Um, very often incomplete or, or sort of in stages architecture that you still see um, often in, in Palestinian um, towns within Israel and certainly in East Jerusalem, which almost becomes sort of the, the marker of these of these localities, right? That's how you know where you are. Um, if, if you're in Jerusalem itself and you're walking around, along the rail, um, the rail walkway, and you very quickly can see that you've um, made your way into, into Betzafafa, um, in part because you start seeing houses that are um, maybe not entirely finished or have some bare concrete elements. Um, and those are precisely the result of, of those restrictions that you mentioned, the need to build without permits um, because permits are not being granted. Um, the other places where we see concrete and cement um, obviously being poured um, by the ton or by the you know dozens and hundreds of tons in the settlements, again, for the most part by Palestinian workers, um, this time from the West Bank. So these structures of, of exploitation, of, of also finding yourself in a position that you are partaking um, whether you like it or not, and you don't for the most part, um, in sort of the processes that are robbing your, you of your own land um, because you need to survive and, and, and this sort of economic structure that is built um, continue in the, in the separation wall as this massive concrete um, sort of structure um, and in Gaza, um, whereas you mentioned restrictions on cement, on the introduction of cement, are among the most trenchant um, in terms of, of the materials restricted in what, what is known as dual use materials. So materials that can be used for civilian purposes and supposedly can also be used for military purposes. But all of these categories and these materials have longer histories. Um, the, even the idea of a dual-use material, um, so when, when the Zionist movement and, and sort of groups of labor Zionists, um, the labor brigade, make their first inroads into quarries into the 1920s and 1930s, one of the things they do in the quarry, because there are explosions frequently, um, is manufacture explosives. Um, as part of sort of arming um, the, the sort of militias and practice um, in, in, in munitions and arms and weapon practice, because you can do that under the cover of the explosives of the quarry. Um, cement is, and concrete and stone are heavily, heavily politicized in this context. Um, and you can see how um, 
they are sort of used differently by different actors, are given different valences by different actors. For, for those individuals, those families building in East Jerusalem now, or in Arabe or Kafalkana in the 1950s and 1960s, cement and concrete are the materials that you can work with the quickest. So there is a house to demolish um, and it makes it more difficult um, for the authorities to destroy because there's something there already. Um, and, and at the same time, it's also the materials that you can control, that you can use to restrict movement, that you can use to change the landscape. Um, so so I, th I think this longer view is, is very helpful in that respect. I have one last question. We follow one path, but I was wondering if there's anything that I didn't ask that you want to talk about. I think that we've touched upon a lot, a lot of the things that are, are sort of germane to my, to my research. Um, one of the things that, so, so, so I, I mentioned this a couple of times, um, there is a weight um, to sort of the history of, of construction in stone and stone quarries that I see as going um, alongside that of cement and concrete um, in many ways and can tell us a very sort of different story about who has control over a certain material, who is able to make better use of it, um, and sort of the politics of different materials um, are, are in fact different. Um, one thing I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd like for listeners um, to think about is, is also the bigger sort of underlying phenomenon um, we can talk about and we, we should talk about the sort of the colonial backdrop for this, the backdrop of empire, of capitalism, um, of, of race and racial thought and racial politics and racism. Um, and, and I think that the question of the devaluation of labor um, is also really important how certain forms of labor um, are, are devalued, even if not monetarily, because as I said, construction work is actually fairly good pay, then certainly in terms of social status, in terms of security of employment, and in terms of safety and, and the risk to the body itself. One of the things that we see in recent years is increased attention to the outrageous amount of construction accidents um, in, in Israel, in Israel-Palestine, but also within Israel in the Green Line, um, where we have some more data as opposed to what's happening in the West Bank and Gaza. And those are directly sort of those outrageous statistics in, in my view, which make this not only the most dangerous industry in, in the land, but also um, a comparatively very dangerous construction industry as compared to other countries, um, including countries with very bad labor protections, is directly linked um, to these histories of racialization, of politicization, and, 
And I think we need to think about how this history takes a toll on workers, on their families um, today, how it has done that historically. Um, that to me is, is, is sort of one crucial aspect. And, and to, to recognize the, the prices that have been paid um, for, for, by, by workers, by their families, by their communities, um, and sort of take a pause for a moment and think about those, those prices, those sacrifices. This was Nimrod Benziv, currently a Polonsky Academy Fellow at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute and a postdoctoral researcher at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and author of the upcoming book, hopefully soon, Foundations sure. of Inequality. Nimrod, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Roberto. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, Please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at Jerusalem Unplugged. Thanks and I'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>